We'll turn back to the book of First Timothy chapter 5 today, verses 19 through 21. Let's begin reading in verse 19. Against an elder receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. Them that sin rebuke before all, that others also may fear. I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that thou observe these things without preferring one before another, doing nothing by partiality. You might think that the, the verses that we just read, the scripture that we just read before you today, might not be the most relevant topic for your life. But I think as we begin to develop and unpack this, some of these key words and some of these phrases a little bit before you, you'll see that this is an extremely important passage of Scripture for us in the church. But as we begin to look at the greater principles that underlie this passage and this lesson, especially what we read in verse 19 and even verse 20, you'll see that some of the principles that are contained in this passage are even fundamental in our justice system and would do well to keep in mind and would serve us greatly to implement in our daily lives, in our political system, in our workplace, and in our home. Our passages today are extremely relevant for us in the church in that we learn a biblical method for dealing with accusations within the body of Christ. And so, as we introduce the thought to you today, understand that this word accusation is going to be one of our most important words. It is the concept that we look at today. This is a very unfortunate thing to have to talk about, but it's also a very needful thing to speak about to the church of God. Now, while the scriptures that we look at today apply to the ministry, again, against an elder received not an accusation, as we've defined elder throughout this book of 1 Timothy that has reference to an ordained minister of the gospel, with the one exception of chapter 5 and verse 1 when he's using the other definition, he's referring to older men and older women. While this applies largely to preachers and accusations against preachers, this principle applies to every person here, every person even in society and all aspects and all areas of our lives. Before we look at the passage in specific, we'll just shock you and perhaps even confront all of us with a reality that we wish was not so. It seems like there isn't a week that goes by without some illegal scandal in a Christian assembly somewhere in this country. In the past three days, I've seen two news articles of so-called preachers, most of the time youth pastors, being arrested and tried for abusing young people in the congregation that they worked for. I'm not going to call them servants. They're not servants. But they're the wolf that comes in. We talked about that on the radio today, if you caught the radio broadcast, the fact that wolves creep in to the flock. And many times the wolf will capitalize on young people being alone together and will abuse. 
But as we also think about the political landscape of our country, one of the things that we'll see today is that sometimes an accusation can be used as a weapon. In fact, one of the proverbs that we'll look about or look at today contrasts a lying tongue with certain weapons. And so the words that we say many times can be weapons and a false accusation can be used as a weapon against another person. If you want to destroy another person, one way to do that is in the courtroom of popular opinion. And we live in a, a world that has a political system that just exploits that on a, nearly, on a near weekly basis. As we begin looking at the passage today, against an elder received not an accusation. Just to remind us of something that we probably already know, preachers are going to offend us. Ministers are going to offend us. Why is that? Because we all have a carnal nature, even after being born of the Spirit of God. We are people of the flesh nature and a spiritual nature. We have been made partakers of the divine nature while at the same time very much still possessing the nature of Adam. And so we have the nature of the flesh and the nature of the spirit and the flesh wars against the soul so that we cannot do the things that we would. We're told in the book of Galatians chapter 5 that we are to walk in the spirit and we shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. And so we have the fruit of the Spirit in that passage contrasted with the lust of the flesh. But my point is, even after the new birth, even after personal, vital, individual salvation, that moment when you come to know God through the Holy Spirit at the command of Christ himself, even after that, we still possess the nature of the flesh. We all have a carnal nature because we all have a carnal nature Ministers of the gospel are going to offend us. I won't ask for a show of hands, but I guarantee you if I asked you, has a preacher ever offended you in his sermon, then you will confess, yes, I have been offended by a minister of the gospel at some point in my life. Now, if I were to ask you a second question, was the preacher factually, technically accurate in what he said. More than likely, you would say, well, yes, he was factually, technically accurate in what he said. Now, we have to be very careful as ministers of the gospel that we do not say what we say in such a way as to intentionally offend. And we have to be very careful when we talk about various ideas because we don't want to offend someone in such a way by how we say something that we lose them as a part of the audience, as it were. We don't want to lose them as a church concerning our outreach in the community by needlessly offending them. The truth is offensive enough to our carnal natures without me trying to be offensive. They might be thinking, no preacher would ever try to be intentionally offensive. I have known preachers, this may come as a shock to you, who intentionally tried to hurt people's feelings, to offend people, to make people mad. There was a preacher that 
Thank the good Lord he is not among our people, but he will use all sorts of pejoratives and mean names in the pulpit. He'll jump up on the stand and point fingers and jump up and down on the pulpit like a crazy person. If you ever see me jump up and down on the pulpit, you know he has had an aneurysm, something in his brain has died. Get him out of the pulpit and send him to the ER because something is wrong. Unless there's a snake or something that crawls up here or a spider. I maybe would make an exception for that. I'm not jumping up and down on the pulpit. We don't have to intentionally be offensive because the truth is offensive enough. We don't like hearing in our carnality that we are sinners, that we offend God, that the things that we do, that we brush off and sweep under the rug and say, ah, it's not that bad. That's offensive to God so much so that he sent his only begotten son into the world to die for that particular sin in your life. And so we are very much offended from time to time by what ministers of the gospel say in our presence and we must learn to enjoy and appreciate having our toes stepped on, to put it in a figure of speech. As offensive as the gospel can be and the word of God can be to those of us that love it, the gospel is far more offensive to those who don't know Christ. Paul devotes a great deal of time in First and Second Corinthians speaking about the fact that to the natural man the gospel message is foolishness. Can you imagine, and perhaps if you went a portion of your life without knowing Christ, you can do more than imagine, you can sympathize, but can you imagine how offensive it is for someone who doesn't know Christ to hear this relationship that you're in is sinful? What do you mean sinful? Who are you to tell me that I'm doing wrong? Well, it's not me that's telling you, it's the Word of God that's telling you. The Word of God is our standard. In the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we learn that the gospel message is foolishness to them that perish, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we learn that we bear the savor of Christ, life unto life and death unto death, to the living in Christ. This is a message that has the aroma of life itself, and to the dead in sin, it has the aroma of death itself. The gospel message is an offensive message to those who do not know God. This is why it takes regeneration for a person to believe in the gospel, to believe in Christ. Until we've been regenerated, we cannot believe. And we know that we are regenerated through the immediate working of the Holy Spirit. John 3, 8, as the wind blows through this creation, so does the Holy Spirit enter into our lives quickening us when we are dead in trespasses and in sin, writing the law of God upon our heart and our mind, giving us a heart of flesh, taking away the heart of stone. And from that moment, from that moment, the gospel can impact our lives. The gospel is an offensive message sometimes. The apostles were accused in the book of Acts often by the Jews. And the things that they would accuse them of sometimes are mind-boggling. The apostle Paul, when he went back to Jerusalem... You remember that he told the elders of the church at Ephesus and Miletus that he's going back into Jerusalem. When he goes into Jerusalem, he knows through the Spirit that afflictions and sufferings wait for him there. He goes into the place and the Apostle James says, look, Paul, look, man, we know that you're orthodox, but you don't understand the spiritual condition of this city, Jerusalem. While you're here, keep the law to show yourself orderly. To all of these Jewish believers, because there were thousands of Jews that believed in Jesus in Jerusalem, and yet in their day, reluctant to let go of 
everything they've known in the Old Testament, they had invented a hybrid system of Old and New Testament. And so they kept the Old Testament and they worshipped Christ. Paul shaves his head to show himself orthodox to them. He goes in to keep the feast. And there were people there who were unbelievers that knew who Paul was. And they accused him of bringing Gentiles into the temple of God and by that false accusation dragged him out into the street and beat him before everyone. Paul would have lost his life there. Except the one of the Roman soldiers sees that and intervenes and drags Paul away. And as he stands on the steps, he begins to preach unto them and beckon with the hand and preach to the entire mass of people there that are accusing him. But what did they do? They accused him falsely. They were offended by what he preached and they began to issue false accusations against him. Now part of the message today is going to be dealing with false accusations. Part of the message today is going to be dealing with investigation. Part of the message today is going to be dealing with what happens when we find that an accusation is true. The Gentiles often accuse the apostles in the book of Acts. You have the Jews accusing them. You have the Gentiles accusing them. They would accuse them of being robbers of widows' houses, of teaching heresy, of speaking evil against their ways and their customs. I was reading this morning of the Apostle Paul in Ephesus and how there was a riot. And as they began to drag the Christians into the theater, which was not a theater as we understand it, where you go to watch the latest Marvel movie or the latest Star Wars movie. Those are the only times I go to the theater. But the theater is a place where they would watch you mauled to death by wild animals. And as they drag the Christians in there, Paul tries to go and the brethren hold him back. And another man, Alexander, intervenes and speaks out on their behalf. And the crowd is so crazed at the gospel, they begin crying out, Great is Diana of the Ephesians for two solid hours. These pagans screamed at the top of their lungs. False accusations, offense at the gospel. Sometimes this is simply by way of misunderstanding. Sometimes it's by way of outright lies to influence those around the liar against the person that they're offended at. Now, our Lord Jesus was also often accused falsely. You remember at Jesus' trial that there would be multiple, multiple false witnesses that would come and they would bear witness against him and testify against him, and none of those false witnesses agreed within themselves. One liar would come and say one thing, and another liar would come and say another thing about the same event. And because there was a discrepancy between what these false witnesses said, nothing that they accused Jesus of would stick. And so Jesus finally tells them that hereafter you will see me, the Son of God, the Son of Man, on the right hand of God coming in the clouds. You will see me in my glory, and I will judge you. And they began to say, what further need have we of witnesses? He's blasphemed himself. They rip their garments and they begin to beat Jesus as they convict him. But because these people hated the message of Christ, because they hated the person of Christ, they would often bring false accusations against Jesus. Now that begins to develop for us this common occurrence in the world that if a person is offended at another person, so many times they result to this sinful practice of lying 
in order to discredit and scandalize the person that they dislike. It happens every single day. Does it not? Does it not happen every day? And it's a weapon that's used in our world. Paul places a rule on the church here. Now let's read the rule. Against an elder, receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. Against an elder, receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. That is to say, we don't receive allegations against a preacher unless there is sufficient proof. Why? Because preachers above everyone else in the church are walking targets. We are targets. Targets of Satan, targets of the enemies of Christ, targets of the enemies of the gospel. You might recall when David sinned with Bathsheba, how there was a so much scandal involved in that. But the worst part of that is that God's enemies had calls to blaspheme God himself because David had sinned in such a heinous and public way with a false accusation that scandal and blasphemy can occur even when there's been no sin committed to cause it to be. And so Paul places this rule on the church that we don't receive an accusation or an allegation without proof. And the proof here, he says, takes place in the form of two or three witnesses. Now, while we think about witnesses, we should also understand that in our day of social media and computers and the cloud and social media traffic and, and all of this, in, in this day, there were no smartphones. So if someone was in a brawl downtown, let's say Pastor Ben goes out and gets into a brawl downtown. I don't plan on getting in a brawl downtown. But let's say I do. In that day, you had to have eyewitnesses who testified, I saw this. In today's time, we have other forms of witnesses that are trustworthy, sometimes more trustworthy than what we see and remember because our minds are not accurate many times in repeating to ourselves and to others what we have seen or what we think we've seen. I'm sure you've seen some of the investigative journalism that has been produced. They'll stage a scene, maybe a crime, maybe a fight, and all the witnesses that saw that, they will go and they will ask, what did you see? And, and it's amazing. People see various numbers of people from the, the real occurrence that happened, the, the experiment. They might, the, the persons involved might have had a red shirt, and yet they see a blue shirt because our minds, our minds are not as accurate as a computer. We like to compare the mind to whatever it is that is the most advanced technology in our day. I've seen interesting write-ups about this. Back in the medieval time when everything was mechanical, they pictured, and you can see this in some of the art, a brain with gears and wheels and shafts and all of these almost clockwork-like parts. And in our present day and age, we like to think of our eyes as a camera and our brain as a hard drive and a processor. But our brains are not a hard drive and a processor. I can take a picture with my smartphone and it will remember exactly what you wore, exactly what color pants you had on, what color eyes you have, but yet we begin to ask one another, what, what did you wear? What color pants did he have? What type of shoes did he have on? What are his eyes? What color is his hair? And our minds get that wrong. I say all of that to say that in our present day we have other forms of witnesses. The camera might be a witness to a crime. 
Your dash cam could be a witness to a car accident. A camera on a street corner could be a witness. A security camera at a bank or an ATM could be a witness. And we are to, as we might say, rule those admissible as forms of witnesses. But we're not to receive accusations against an elder or anyone else in the church without proof, at least two or three witnesses. Now, at the same time, we're also not to simply disregard something if there is proof. So this is why in our present day and age, there is a lot of scandal taking places in other denominations. And and I don't say this to say anything negative about other types of people because no group of people is immune to the wolf. No group of people is immune to the wolf. We're not immune to the wolf here. We're not immune to the wolf. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 that false prophets are wolves in sheep's clothing and they prey on his church. It's easy to look out at other groups of people we disagree with and say, well, that's their problem. We don't have that problem. We could have that problem. What did Paul say in Acts chapter 20? I know after my departure shall grievous wolves enter in, not sparing the flock. We are just as much at risk as anyone else of a wolf preying upon the sheep. When this occurs, when this occurs, the church is to report that, if it be a matter of a crime, to the authorities. So here in the last 40 years, there was a study that came out. I'm going to digress for just a moment of time just to tie this in with some contemporary events in our country today. We referenced this a year ago in a message, but the large newspaper in Dallas, Texas, put out a story listing all of the victims, child victims of abuse in one particular uh, denomination, and it it generated a hashtag on Twitter, and it, it was tied into the Me Too movement, and the most lamentable part of that scandal was the fact when men abused women or children in a congregation, when that happened, rather than reporting the abusers to the police, they simply fired the person and ran the abuser to another city, to another congregation, because in the minds of the leaders of these churches, our reputation is so important to us that we do not want to deal with the scandal, we'll send them off to be someone else's problem. And so you find where men who had abused children even at one congregation would maybe jump to two or three other congregations before someone, before someone actually called the police and dealt with it the way that it should have been dealt with. Let me just say this. If a person is found to be guilty and it is a credible accusation, before I call the deacons... I'm calling the police. So you might look at me as a mandatory reporter. Now, in some states, you have mandatory reporter laws where if you're a pastor or a doctor or a teacher, you have to report abuse if you hear of abuse. Guess what we are here at Flint River? We are a mandatory reporter congregation. If I learn that someone is abusing someone else, I'm not going to say, well, I have pastor confidentiality. I can't talk about that. I'm going to be on the phone with the police while it's still hot on my brain. Why? Because that is why God created the institution of government in the world 
to terrorize evil. Romans 13 calls the government the minister of God to execute wrath upon evildoers in the world. They are just as much the minister of God's wrath on evil as we are the ministers of Christ in the gospel. They answer to God. They're responsible to God for dealing with sin, with wickedness, with crime in the world. And so if there is an accusation and it bears true, it must never be swept under the rug. It must be dealt with. And if a crime has been violated then law enforcement has to be involved and due process has to be involved. Does that mean that the church doesn't deal with it? No. If a crime has occurred in the church, the church has to deal with it too. How does the church deal with it? If I have robbed a bank, and I'm using weird hypotheticals and I'm making me as the person who's the, the criminal here. I'm not going to pick any of you, you know. This is the point where the preacher can pick on the deacons, but I'm not going to pick on the deacons. I'm going to use me. So if, if it comes out that I rob a bank, even though the police have the responsibility of arresting me and the district attorney prosecutes me and I go to court, the church has a responsibility to discipline me as a member for committing a public offense and excommunicate me until I'm repentant. The church has the responsibility to judge me and discipline me as a member if I am guilty even of a crime. And so in that case, I would find myself being punished by the government, disciplined by the church, and if that happened to me, I would probably, the third institution God created was the family of all of those, I would be the most fearful to face my wife. And so you would face all three forms of institution that God created in the world. We cannot, we must not disregard an accusation if there is proof. Sometimes, and the last thing we'll look at today is this has to be without partiality. I don't care how much you love the person. I don't care how much I love the person. If there is a credible accusation against even a preacher, we are to deal with that. It cannot be swept under the rug. Now, I want to pause here before we move into the investigation of this and see how this is a principle for our daily lives and just say how relevant this is to the church today. Now, eventually we're going to get back to thoughts in this passage that have to do with grace and comforting thoughts. And, and I promise you, after some of this relevant, hard-hitting stuff, we'll spend some time talking about God's goodness and grace and uh, His preservation of us and all those wonderful things that we learn in salvation. But friends, Paul wrote this, and it's there for a reason. And we've got to know it. There could not be a more relevant topic for an American to hear in a church in 2019 than how to deal with an abuser. Literally, on the news this morning, I saw another case of someone who had abused someone else in a church. It takes place all the time. And when it happens, we need swift, harsh Justice. Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, Because sentence is not carried out speedily on the wicked, the hearts of men are set in them to do evil. Because people are not punished for the crimes they commit, other men see that 
and they commit crime. We need swift, harsh punishment for crime in a society. God says that. Well, judge not lest ye be judged. That's not talking about crime. That's talking about looking at other people and saying you're going to hell. We don't know who's going to hell. And it's also a warning that however harsh we are to others, God will be to us. We should demand sentence to be executed upon wickedness. Well, as we think about an elder being accused and bringing an accusation against an elder, you know that he places this rule that it has to be before two or three witnesses. Now, I want to spend just a little bit of time talking about the importance of getting the full story. The first passage I want to look at is in the book of Proverbs, chapter 18 and verse 13. Proverbs 18.13 is a passage that we teach our young ones in the house when they're young. And any of you that rode here in a vehicle that I purchased, you know that as we ride in separate cars, you, you woke up in my house, you know this passage. You know this is one that you've heard. He that answereth the matter before he heareth it, it is folly and shame unto him. Let me read that again. He that answereth a matter before he heareth it, it is folly and shame unto him. We don't answer something unless we first heard the case be made. So this means when we see the headline, we don't immediately jump to conclusions. You should know in this country we are all presumed innocent until proven guilty. Nowadays it really doesn't matter because you're tried in the courtroom of social media and the news will run with any story, true or false, they'll run with anything just because it's sensational. The news media makes a living on ad revenue. Sometimes we don't realize that. They make a living giving the news. No, 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 no. Unless they're selling newspapers to you, they're not selling you that news story. You didn't pay for the news story. They're selling advertisers ad space. Why is the ad space valuable? Because people watch. How do they get more people to watch? They do that by being sensational. And so they run with a story, whether it's true or not. They spin it any way they want to spin it because it's sensational. It has views. When they have views, they have viewers. When they have viewers, they sell ad revenue. Something that I want you all to remember is that if we answer a matter before we hear it, it is folly unto us and shame. We don't know all the facts. We don't know why something happened. I'll give you another hypothetical. What if you saw someone that you love in the church, let's say a deacon, on a Saturday night leaving Publix with a big bottle of wine? Now, I'm not a teetotaler, but at the same time, I caution you on the use of alcohol because it can be like an adder that strikes you. It's a mocker and it's raging. Jesus turned water to wine. Communion was done with wine. It was a staple part of their diet. But at the same time, the abuse of it is dangerous and destructive. There's a lot of people in the world that would see a deacon leaving Publix on a Saturday night with a bottle of wine and think, that, that man is just a hypocrite. Well, what if he had communion Sunday morning? We've got to get wine somewhere, right, for communion. 
You see, you can look at the same thing from two different perspectives and come to two different conclusions. It's our job to investigate something to know what really happened and then only pass judgment when we've investigated it. Now, this happens in our homes. This is relevant for our day-to-day lives with our wives, with our coworkers. We never answer a matter before we hear it. To do that, it's folly and shame unto us. And so we wait and we listen and we learn. And then after we know all the matter as much as we can know about a matter, that's when we can begin to make a decision. We don't answer a matter before we've heard it. We need to listen and hear the full story. Objectivity is such a lost thing in our country today. We need to be objective people. We need to listen and learn and not stop our ears up that we might have the truth above every other institution in the world. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is to be concerned with that which is true. The truth. Truth in a gospel sense. But what sense would it make to be concerned with truth in a gospel sense and then turn around and jump at any and every lie or conspiracy theory that we read on the Internet? And I'm telling you what, the Internet is full of conspiracy theories. The Internet is full of conspiracy theories. And we love that. It's entertaining to us. Don't we all love a mystery novel? Or a mystery movie? Doesn't it intrigue us when we don't know who committed the crime until the very end? We love that. And we look at life and interpret it through that lens many times to our own shame. The Internet is a very powerful tool for misinformation. We don't answer a matter until we've heard the matter. Now, at the same time, look at Proverbs chapter 25 and verse 18. A man that beareth false witness against his neighbor, this is why we have two or three witnesses, not just a man with an accusation that's not the final word. Things have to be heard and tried, and if there's not evidence, then we disregard it as if it is false. A man that beareth false witness against his neighbor is a maul and a sword and a sharp arrow. A person that bears false witness is compared in this proverb to a weapon. Now, this is what I refer to as tactical lying. You might want to write that down. Tactical lying. It's where someone uses the words that they say, their lies about another person, to injure that person. And so... Someone who has a grudge against you might say something against you that is not true. Or perhaps they do like the false witnesses did against Jesus. They take something that is true and they spin it and reform it into something it's not. And then they criticize and attack you based upon their caricature of what you said or did. What's an example of that? Okay, in Jesus' ministry, Jesus said that to the wicked generation... That means the the wicked, unregenerate, ungodly of Israel, there would be no sign given but the sign of the prophet Jonas. What is the sign of the prophet Jonas? As Jonas was in the heart of the earth three days and three nights, so would, or excuse me, as Jonah was in the belly of the well three days and three nights, so would the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth. Jesus said, in that, if you destroy this temple, I will raise it up again on the third day. And he spoke not of the temple in Jerusalem, but the temple of his body. They hear that, and they say, this man says that he's going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Years it took to build this temple, and this man says he's going to build it in three days? 
When Jesus was being tried before the high priests and the Sanhedrin, do you know what accusation they brought against him? This man said he's going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. That's not what he said. He said, first of all, if you destroy the temple, referring to his body, I will raise it again in three days. If you destroy this tabernacle of flesh in three days, I will raise it again. He never said anything about destroying that temple and rebuilding it. But they took a portion of what he said, they spun it into something that he didn't say, and they attacked him based upon their version of what occurred. This is why we have to have two or three witnesses that agree. Because people will lie about you to destroy you. This occurs all the time in American politics. Tactical lying. Bring a false accusation against someone to destroy their reputation to win an election. And both political parties do it. Both political parties do it. And guess what it is? It is shameful, it is despicable, and it is offensive to God. It's not okay if the party that I prefer does it. It's wrong. God is not pleased. But notice the tactical nature of this. A lie is referred to or compared with a maul, a sword, and an arrow. All three being instruments of war designed to kill your enemy. People use their words to assault people others that they dislike or that they disagree with. It's compared to a multitude of weapons. Because it's effective, it's exploited. Because it's effective, it's exploited. Concerning false witnesses, and I just want to continue to bring this out before moving into some of the other language, It is one of the things that God is said to hate in the book of Proverbs chapter 6. These six things does the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. A proud look. Isn't it amazing that he begins with a proud look? God, what are the things that you hate? And in our minds we would think all of these things that we hate in our lives, these things that we look at and say, that's just atrocious, that's terrible, that's horrible. Why would someone do something so immoral? And yet the first thing that we read is a proud look. God hates when I look at someone as if I'm better than them. And that doesn't necessarily mean to walk around looking like a snob. You know, when your nose is in the air and I'm better than you. A proud look is when you look at somebody and in your heart you're thinking I'm better than them. We're not better than them. There's none to do with good, no, not one. We're equally wicked in our own nature without Christ. And the, our only goodness is given to us by Jesus. So none of us are any better than anybody else. And so a proud look is despised. A lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that deviseth wicked imaginations. Feet that be swift in running to mischief. A false witness that speaketh lies. And he that soweth discord 
discord among brethren. Did you notice that two of those things that God hates has to do with lying? Seems that God really gets offended when people lie about other people. He hates the lying tongue. He hates the false witness that speaks lies. This means that he hates the sin. And by the way, we often hear hate the we love this we hate the sin and love the sinner. Sometimes God hates the sinner. Sometimes God hates the sinner. He hates a false witness that speaketh lies. The psalm says he hates all workers of iniquity. Romans 9 and Malachi 1 says he hated Esau. There are people in the world that are the recipients of divine hatred. God's hatred is not like our hatred. But his hatred is holy and pure. His hatred is a righteous hatred. God hates the false witness that speaks lies. And he that soweth discord among brethren. It doesn't take a whole lot of imagination to tie in the false witness with people that sow discord, does it? Bearing a false witness against a brother is one of the chief ways that discord is sown among brethren. This is why Scripture speaks so strongly against gossip. Some of you might be thinking, could he just stop already? We get it. We've heard it. Okay. Handshake. Conference. Can we go to lunch? Can we go to lunch? <laughs> Can we go to lunch now? This is why Scripture speaks so strongly against gossip. We should not be gossipy people. And we're all guilty of that. You want to know who's most guilty of gossip in the church, in my experience, in the decades I've been a part of the Lord's church? Preachers. They're the worst at gossiping. I mean, there are email chains of preachers who do nothing but gossip about other preachers. Every so often I get CC'd in on one of those and I'm just like, man, don't email me. I don't, I don't care. You know, if you spend half as much time trying to labor among your flock and grow the church and preach the gospel in your community as you do gossiping about other preachers, your church would be three times its size. Anyway, you can quote me on that. God speaks very powerfully against things like gossip because it's using the tongue, sometimes false witness, to sow discord among brethren. In the Old Testament... To show you the generality of this principle, to try it, to try things and to, to only receive it with the accusation with witnesses and proof. Deuteronomy 17, verse 6, At the mouth of two witnesses or three witnesses shall he that is worthy of death be put to death. But at the mouth of one witness he shall not be put to death. In other words, though Israel was given the death penalty for the violation of many of the laws that God gave, the penalty was not to be enacted except with sufficient proof. We refer to this in our country today as due process, the right to a trial, the right to face your accuser. Our laws concerning justice are built upon many of these principles that we find in the Word of God. By the way, this also tells you that God is not opposed to the death penalty when it is warranted. God is not opposed to the death penalty. Well, what about thou shalt not kill? The word kill means murder. Thou shalt do no murder. 
To murder is to take a life that doesn't deserve it. To murder is also when I take a life being an individual. Government has the authority to take a life when it is warranted. He that is worthy of death be put to death at the mouth of two or three witnesses. That's back in Deuteronomy. That's back in the law. Deuteronomy 19.15 One witness shall not rise up against a man for any iniquity or for any sin in any sin that he sinneth at the mouth of two witnesses or at the mouth of three witnesses shall the matter be established. You have to remember that this is not only a ceremonial law. That's partly a ceremonial law. You have the laws concerning the priesthood, laws concerning the temple, laws concerning the sacrifices, laws concerning the Sabbath days, including the feast days, the festival days. Laws concerning religious rites like circumcision, the Passover lamb. But this was also criminal code. If you do this, this is what happens to you. But here we have where God says, look, if there's only one witness for any sin or for any iniquity, you don't tolerate it. There has to be more than one witness. Sometimes we talk about it being he said, she said. What do we mean by that? We mean by that there's one being accused and one accuser and no proof, and so it's a matter of a person's word. You cannot convict somebody based upon simply what they say. There has to be what? Proof. On whom does the burden of proof fall? On the prosecution. And it has to be what? Beyond a shadow of a doubt. It has to be beyond doubt, reasonable doubt, that a person is guilty. If there is any doubt in the jury, they're not going to prosecute somebody. In the book of Matthew chapter 18, we bring it to the New Testament. When Jesus tells us how to deal with issues in a congregation, if thy brother trespass against thee, now this doesn't mean I don't like the way he looked at me. This means if he's trespassed against you, he did something to you. Maybe he took something that belonged to you. Maybe he was cruel to you with his words. Maybe he tried to harm you. If your brother trespass against thee, go tell him his fault between thee and him alone. That doesn't say pick up the phone and call everyone and talk to them about it. It says go tell the fault between thee and him alone. When someone's offended you in the church, you go directly to him. Now, if he beat you up, call the police. If he abused someone, call the police. But these are matters that you might consider civil rather than criminal. In our country, we divide between civil and criminal. Civil is you roofed my house and it leaks and you won't fix it and I paid you $6,000 and so I want my money back. That's civil. Criminal is when you roofed my house, you stole my TV. And that's you call the police. See the difference? Civil and criminal. These are civil things. If your brother trespass against you, you go tell him his fault between you and he alone. If he hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. Praise God. A sinner repented. And as Peter asked Jesus, when my brother sins against me and, and he repent if he apologizes how many times do I forgive him seven and you can just hear Peter thinking on that eighth time boy you've had it 
Jesus said, no, 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 I say not unto you seven, but 70 times seven. 490? Really? It's not about the number. It's that we infinitely forgive one another. When we are offended, let's run to the cross as quick as we can because God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven us. And because of that, we freely forgive one another in the church. If he will not hear thee, what do you do? Take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. The purpose of these, minis- uh, these witnesses are twofold. Number one, that they can also join in with the offended party in reasoning with the offender. Because in the multitude of counselors, their safety, sometimes hearing it from more than one person, will reason with someone and shake them enough to where they repent. But you notice that Jesus also says this, that every word may be established. When you take two witnesses with you or three witnesses with you to reason with someone who has offended you, you have a record of events that can be reported back to the church. Because the next step is what? If he neglect to hear them, take it to the church, tell it unto the church, If he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. If he refuses to hear the church, he is to be dealt with as if he is an unconverted person. A what? A heathen and a publican. That means that he faces the discipline of the church. Excommunicado. (laughs) Excommunicated. He's to be excluded from the assembly. Denied the rights of membership. If he neglects to hear the church. And then he includes this, Whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, loosed in earth shall be loosed in heaven. This means that God in heaven honors the church discipline actions of a congregation. God in heaven honors. This doesn't mean if you're kicked out of the church, you're kicked out of heaven. Paul would speak to that in 1 Corinthians 5 and in other places. We do this that they would be ashamed, that they would be sorry, and that they would what? That they would repent. That life outside the church would cause the offender to repent. And when they repent, guess what we do? We receive them back. We forgive them. We love them. And we we let it go. And so this concept of two or three witnesses and proving all things is something that is universal throughout all the scriptures. Against an elder, receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. Now, this primarily deals with elders, but I've tried to apply it every, uh, in this message to everyone. Because the principle's there. The principle's there. We apply it to everyone. Now, verse 20. Them that sin, rebuke before all, that others also may fear. Who is the them that sin? You find various ideas of this in commentaries and writings. Them that sin could have reference to elders that sinned. The problem with that, grammatically, it's against an elder singular that sins in verse 19, and then the word them in verse 20 is plural. And the word them is a pronoun. If the antecedent of the pronoun them was elders, it doesn't make sense to have a plural pronoun referring to a singular antecedent. You see how the, the problem would arise there? So, them that sin could have reference to elders that sin, or 
It could have reference to those that bring the accusation against an elder with no proof. Someone that's just gossiping about a preacher or, as we applied it today, anyone else in the church. Regardless of whether he's talking about elders that sin or people who sin in bringing unfounded accusations against an elders, they're to be rebuked before all. Why? That others may fear also. Now, I'm just going to be very honest with you. Public rebukes are not well received in our day and age. We're far too soft as a society to tolerate public rebukes. That is not politically correct. That's no way to win friends and influence people. But the same logic carries into church discipline. And if you look back in the ages when the church practiced discipline, they had healthier, more thriving congregations that grew faster than they do today because, number one, they're being obedient to God. And number two, what happens when someone is rebuked publicly for their iniquity that's obviously very scandalous. This is not a light matter. I've, I've known preachers that just rail on their congregation for any and everything. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about something that is grievous. They are rebuked before all that others also may fear. That others also may fear. As a principle, visible repercussions for actions discourage further bad behavior. If I know I'm going to be embarrassed for things that I do, I'm far less likely to do them. Are you that way? As a principle, visible repercussions for actions discourage further bad behavior. Others see that and they manage their behavior. If a church has a problem with a subversive personality and the subversive personality is dealt with in a public way... Others in the church who behave in a subversive way are far less likely to engage in that. Why? Because it ain't going to be tolerated. And when it's not tolerated, the other people who are inclined to that sin will say, wait a minute, I don't want that to happen to me, so I'm going to deal with it. The same could be said for any other number of sins. But we deal with it in a public way. And by the way, concerning hashtag me too and, and the other scandals, you can see where churches violated that as they had problems with abusers in their congregations because it was swept under the rug and the abusers are sent away to some other congregation. How does God say to deal with problems like that in the church? You deal with it how? Privately? You deal with it publicly. You deal with trouble in the church publicly. Them that sin rebuke before all that others may fear also. It needs to be an, an obvious and open and apparent thing that the church simply does not tolerate abuse or mistreatment of her members. And finally, verse 21, I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus and the elect angels, that means the angels that didn't sin, the angels that are those that serve God, you have angels that sinned and the opposite are called elect angels, that thou observe these things without preferring one before another, listen to me, doing nothing by partiality. If there is a credible accusation against a preacher, if there is a credible accusation against a preacher, we are not permitted to say, oh, I've known so-and-so my whole life. He's well-respected. We, we can't receive an accusation against him. Well, that would just be 
That would just be unheard of. If there's an accusation with proof, with witnesses, we cannot have partiality, even if it's our very own best friend. We have to hear the case. We have to pursue the matter. We have to examine and investigate. 